Take your Bible with me, if you will, this morning and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> and today I want us to think about the cross. At the end of the service, I want to make available something to you that I have as a gift to you. I hope that many of you will take it and um, that throughout the course of this week that you will, in fact, think about the cross. But if you will, follow along with me beginning in verse 33 to verse 43. We'll read these 11 verses. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other offering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, today we're going to be thinking about the cross there would be no salvation, there would be no forgiveness of sins, there would be no eternal life, there would be no home in heaven, there would be no hope apart from the cross. Lord, it's so easy for us to forget the cross, it's so easy for us to get distant from the cross, it's so easy for us to drift and to get distracted. And Lord, we need to be brought back to the cross again and again. We do that in the observance of communion. We come back to your sacrifice again and again. But Lord, even beyond that, we need reminders about the cross. Help us, Lord, as we go through this special week that we will think about the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As you well know, today being Palm Sunday, that this is the beginning of Passion Week. Uh, this is the week that we think about the depth of the passion that Jesus Christ had for us when he took our place on the cross of Calvary and he paid the penalty for us. This week began with the palm branches and with the welcoming of Christ and the hosannas that were sung to him. But at the end of the week, Jesus would be nailed to a tree on Golgotha's hill. A few days later, of course, he was resurrected from the grave, and that brings this Passion Week to an end. But there would be no passion. There would be no Passion Week. There would be no salvation were it not for the cross. Almost all of us know and understand something about what the suffering of Jesus would have been like physically. The beatings that he took, the 
the uh, nails in his hands and in his feet, the crown of thorns on his head. We can imagine a little bit of what that kind of pain would have been like, but I want us to take a few minutes and just to consider as well the emotional pain that Jesus had to endure while he was hanging on that cross. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 to 24. This is what he says. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Now listen carefully. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Those two words, reviled and threatened, two very important words as you think about not only the physical suffering of Christ, but you think about the emotional pain that he was bearing on the tree that day. To revile someone is to use words of verbal abuse. It's to hurl invectives at someone with the intention of causing as much pain as you possibly can emotionally. To threaten is to use your words as well, to stop someone from doing something. And yet, Jesus Christ, who was reviled, did not revile again. And Jesus Christ, who was suffering the most ignominious death ever died by any man, did not threaten. He did not use his words to try to stop those who were causing his suffering as they nailed him to that tree. And Jesus was there listening to the insults, listening to the mocking as it was going on, hanging on that tree. The Gospels tell us that there are at least four groups of people who were involved in that mocking. There were those who were passers-by. It says in Mark chapter 15, they blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days... Save yourself and come down from the cross. And on and on they continued, those who were passing by and those who were observers of the scene. There were also the religious elite who were involved in this mocking of Jesus. In both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, it says, With the scribes and elders, he said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him, deliver him, uh, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And so the scribes and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the other religious bodies of the day, there were members of those bodies who were there, who were watching it unfold, and they were taunting, and they were mocking Jesus as he was being nailed to that tree. Of course, a third group were the Roman soldiers. The soldiers had been mocking Jesus for some time. They took him into the praetorium at one point, and they took off his outer robe, and they put on him a purple robe, and they wove together a crown of thorns, and they placed it on his head, and then they came and they bowed before him. They placed a reed in his hand, and they were acting as if he was the king of the Jews. They would kneel in his presence, and they would say, Hail, king of the Jews. And then a little later, they would take the reed, and they would hit him on the head, driving the, thorn, or the crown of thorns deeper into his brow. They spat on him 
all of these things that the Romans, uh, the Roman soldiers did to Jesus, all of the things that they did to mock him, even at the crucifixion scene, they mocked him by offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But surprisingly to me, amongst those who were mocking Jesus were the two who were also being crucified with Jesus, one on either side of Jesus. Those two thieves or robbers, as they're sometimes called, said this, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. In other words, for a period of time, even after the crosses were in place, these two men crucified, one on the left and one on the right, joined in with the crowd and joined in with the religious elite and joined in with the Roman soldiers, and they too joined in in the reviling of Jesus. What you see when you listen and what you see when you see that cross and you see what they're saying about Christ is that he was there without the slightest hint of support from anyone. Yes, Mary was there and John was there and they were there, but they were lost in that, ma that massive crowd who was watching this unfold and the shouting that was being done toward the Lord Jesus. And you can stop and you can imagine some of how that must have felt as they were speaking to him in such a mocking fashion. Thomas Carlyle, who is a philosopher, and, or who was, he's not living now, but a philosopher and a, an author called ridicule, which is what the, they're doing to Jesus. He called ridicule the language of the devil. And that's especially true in this case, isn't it? It's especially true in this case. Now, maybe it shouldn't surprise us that these two thieves are mocking Jesus in the same fashion as everyone else? Because we need to stop and remember that these two thieves were more than just two men who had stolen something and maybe committed a misdemeanor somewhere along the way. These two men were hardened felons. They were hardened criminals. Rome didn't kill someone just because they had stolen something. These men had been involved in some of the worst possible crimes imaginable. I think probably you, along with me, last week were surprised when we awakened and we learned that there had been a mass shooting in Sacramento, California. Uh, the restaurants and the bars had closed at about 2 a.m. and it had forced everybody out into the street and Maybe a tussle or an argument of some kind ensued, and the result was that there were six people who were killed and 12 others who were injured. They found more than 100 bullet casings that were shot. The buildings were hit. Cars were hit. And, of course, the six people who lay deceased because of the shootings. Nothing was said for a long time if you kept up with the news about what had happened or who had done it or why it, was, why it had occurred but then finally, they began to tell a little bit more about what was going on. And after a day or two, they arrested the very first man. And then a little later, they arrested the second man, who was the brother of the first man. And that very first man was a man who had a long criminal history. 
He was a man who had been sentenced to 10 years for violence against his girlfriend, and not just any violence, the most cruel and brutal violence you can possibly imagine committed against his girlfriend. And I suppose probably his brother had something similar as far as a criminal record. This one particular man was in prison for 10 years, and they paroled him early against the advice of the DA who said, if you let him out, he's going to offend again. He has no respect for the law. When you think about the two criminals on either side of Jesus, I want you to think about them in the terms of somebody that is a hardened criminal who has no respect for the law whatsoever. They're not just people committing misdemeanors. They're people committing felons. It may well be that these two men on either side of Jesus were guilty at some point of taking the life of other people. But whether that's true or not, the fact of the matter is they were amongst the worst of the criminals you could imagine. If you have different translation of the scripture than I do, some of the translations translate the word about them as revolutionaries. Others call them robbers or thieves. Some translations call them rebels, and others use the old, the old term malefactors. But these men who were crucified on either side of Jesus weren't just like you and me or weren't just like a common criminal. These men were some of the worst of the worst. And they joined in in casting these invectives against Jesus Christ and against speaking against Jesus Christ. And that's what makes what happens truly, truly amazing. One of those two hardened felons, hardened criminals, revolutionaries who rose up against Rome, one of those two men hanging there on that cross next to Jesus had a complete change of mind about Jesus who was hanging on the middle cross. And cries out to Jesus, asking to be remembered when he comes into his kingdom. You know, that begs the question, what in the world could have caused this man to change his mind? Maybe it was seeing the sign above Jesus' head that read, the king of the Jews. It was written in at least three different languages. Somebody's, someone said there's may possibly four. There's a technicality in the Gospel of John about the word that's translated there. It could be uh, Greek and Hebrew and Latin and Aramaic. But at least three languages is translated and it's put there above his head, the king of the Jews. And maybe hanging there, he began to realize this is no ordinary man, that this must be the Messiah. Or maybe it was looking into the eyes of Jesus and seeing the compassion that he expressed toward even those who were crucifying him. Can you imagine Jesus, how many times in the Gospels it says about Jesus that he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. And to look into the eyes of Jesus was to look into the eyes of compassion. And maybe he looked into the eyes of Jesus through the blood and through the sweat and through all of the stench of that moment and he saw in Christ that compassion, and it caused him to have a change of mind about Jesus. Maybe it was because he feared eternity and the just punishment he would receive for his sins that caused him to think, this is my only and final hope. 
If this is the Messiah, then I need to trust in him. And maybe thinking about his eternity and what he faced caused him to stop and change his mind. Maybe it was the words Jesus spoke from the cross to the very ones who were crucifying him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And maybe that's what convinced him. If a man like this could forgive those who were crucifying him, he must be the Messiah. Or maybe it was being alone, hanging on that cross, suffering and dying, and there wasn't any other person, no other person that cared about his life. Or maybe it was the calm and majestic way in which Jesus conducted himself as he suffered that horrendous crucifixion. I mean, he watched Jesus And he saw the dignity with which Jesus conducted himself. And he saw the way Jesus acted as they were speaking these words against him and as they were crucifying crucifying him in that calm and majestic way caused him to recognize this is no ordinary man. Or maybe it was the words that were mockingly spoken about Christ when they said, he saved others. Maybe he heard those words and he thought, well, if he saved others, maybe he'll save me. Or maybe it was just the realization that Jesus was enduring an unjust sentence that finally convinced this man that Jesus was who he claimed to be. I stand before you and I tell you that I don't know exactly what it was that caused this hardened felon, this man who deserved what he was receiving I don't know what it was that caused that man to change in that moment, and really nobody does until we get to heaven. We'll have to ask him when we arrive there. But one of those criminals saw Jesus differently as time went along, and he watched him dying on that cross, and he ultimately said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. By the way, there there was no purgatory. There was no soul sleep. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Think for a moment about that word paradise. It has Persian roots. It literally means a walled garden. And when a Persian king wished to give one of his subjects a very special honor, he made him a companion of the garden. In other words, He would walk along beside the one who was the royal king through that garden, admiring the beauty of that garden, walking beside the king. On this day, Jesus promised this man an honored place as a companion of the garden in the courts of heaven. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that I talk to people at times of bereavement is life begins in a garden And life ends in a garden. Life begins in that garden with Adam and Eve walking through the beauty of all that God had created. And God says life ends in paradise, what he calls here a walled garden, where you walk with the one who made it all possible and you see the beauty of that garden. Another way to say it is the way Jesus says it in John chapter 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you want to know where paradise is? Do you want to know where heaven is? Do you want to know where these mansions are? They are wherever Jesus is. Heaven is about being with Jesus for all of eternity. You know, sometimes we talk about this city that Jesus says he's prepared, and we like to talk about the streets of gold and the walls of jasper and the gates of pearl. And we revel in the fact that in heaven there's no suffering and there's no sin and there's no sorrow, none of those things that we're familiar with in this life. And sometimes in our earthbound thinking, we overemphasize the value of the place and minimize the value of the person. Can I say that again? Sometimes in our earthbound thinking, we overemphasize the value of the place while we minimize the value of the person who made it possible. When we get to heaven, I don't believe when we're in that walled garden, I don't believe we're going to be mesmerized by anything there more than Jesus. And we're going to walk in that walled garden with him as a companion of the garden. Now, I want you to notice three things about this thief who had this change of heart while he's hanging on the cross. Again, this is a hardened criminal. You look at people and you say, surely he could never change. This man was the worst of the worst, but he changed. And I want you to think about three things with me about this man that changed, that caused, that, that caused him to have uh, this life change when he was given this promise of going into the kingdom with God. First of all, he recognized his own sinfulness, and he stopped blaming others for his sins. We, we live in a society where we blame everybody else for our problems. We blame everybody else for the wrongs that we commit. It's not my fault. It's your fault. That's not new. That's been going on since the beginning of time, but it's something that all of us uh, are guilty of doing at times. But you will never be changed and be given a place in the garden to walk along beside the Lord Jesus himself if you don't come to the place where you own your own sins. And you acknowledge that you fall short of the glory of God. Did you know that these two prisoners recognized, or at least this one man, recognized the reality of his own sinfulness? Look back at verses 40 and 41. Look what it says. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Now listen to him. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. You hear what he says? The other man who's casting these same invectives and mocking Jesus, joining with everybody else, finally this one prisoner stops and says, this one criminal stops and says, don't you realize that you and I are dying for what we have done? This man isn't. This one man at least acknowledged on this day owned his own sinfulness uh, to himself and stopped blaming others. You know, today's society, what we do is we change the name of sins. We call them something less boating. 
at something you know, less evil sounding, or we erase them off the list altogether, and we say, well, that's not a sin anymore. Do you realize God doesn't act that way? God doesn't conduct himself in that fashion? I heard the story of a little boy who told one of his friends at school one day, my daddy can whip your daddy. The other boy said, no, he can't. The boy said, yes, my daddy can. My daddy has a list of everybody he can whip, and your daddy's name is on my daddy's list. <laughs> the little boy went home and told his daddy, and it made his daddy mad. He proceeded to go over to the man's house, and he knocked on the door, and the man came to the door, and he said, my boy said that your boy said that you can whip me. The man responded, yes, that's right. The other man said, my boy said, you have my name on a list of everybody you can whip. He said, yes, I do. The other man said, I'm right here now to prove to you that you can't whip me. The man said, oh, you say I can't whip you? The other man said, no, you can't whip me. He said, okay, I'll just take your name off my list. God doesn't erase sins off the list, does he? God doesn't change the names of the sins and say, well, that's a psychological disorder. God calls sin, sin. And until you own your sin and say, I am guilty, I am worthy of dying and being separated from Christ, until you own your own sin, you can never be changed as this man was changed by the power of God. He said, we're receiving the due rewards of our deeds. And do you realize that the due rewards of our deeds is to be separated from God forever? We're not separated from God just because we steal or we lie or we cheat or we commit adultery or we commit fornication or because we're hypocrites or we're impatient or greedy or materialistic. All of those are sins in God's eyes. But the worst sin, the worst sin, is the sin of unbelief. Because it's the sin of unbelief in Jesus that damns your soul to hell. Listen to it, John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you know why people go to hell? Why they're separated from God forever? Why they remain in their sinfulness? Because they refuse to believe in Jesus as their Savior. There's a second thing that this man uh, did that brought change to his life. First, he acknowledged his sin, and he owned his own sin. But secondly, he acknowledged that Christ was perfect and his only hope. He saw Jesus hanging next to him, and he recognized Jesus is my only hope. He heard the words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And he must have thought within himself, only God can forgive. This man must be God. He must be the perfect one. And as he hung there, he acknowledged that Christ was perfect and his only hope. I want you to know today that there is no fault in Jesus at all. Jesus never committed 
a sin. According to the law, he crossed every T and he dotted every I. He was innocent of all of the charges that were leveled against him. He had been illegally incarcerated. He was falsely accused. He was wrongfully convicted and he was unjustly executed. And if there was ever a miscarriage of justice, this was it. Pilate said about Jesus that he was innocent and he could find no fault in him. Pilate's wife had a sleepless night and warned her husband not to be a part of the execution of Jesus because he was a just man. Judas regretted his decision to betray Jesus and committed suicide, thus testifying to Jesus' innocence. The Roman soldier at Christ's death said, truly, this was the Son of God. And now, even this repentant criminal recognizes that Jesus is innocent and asks him to remember him when he comes to his kingdom. If you and I are going to be made right with God and have a place in that city that he has prepared, we're going to be able to walk with him in the garden that he has in heaven. If we're going to walk along with him as a companion of the garden, we must acknowledge our sin and we must own it, that we are guilty. And we must look at Jesus and we must see that when he died on the cross, he took upon himself our sins. He took the penalty, the full weight of the penalty on himself. And Jesus suffered what we rightfully should suffer ourselves. You and I have to acknowledge the person of Christ if we want to walk with him as a companion of the garden. This is not just believing in Jesus as a historical figure who lived a long time ago and about whom the History Channel does uh, you know, a, a, a story about every so often. This is about the perfect, sinless Son of God who was not guilty when he was nailed to that cross but took our guilt on himself. But thirdly, he not only owned his own sin, acknowledged that he was guilty and that Christ was perfect in his only hope, but thirdly, he asked for what Jesus alone could give. He asked for what Jesus alone could give. When you come into your kingdom... He said, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Amidst all the taunts and insults hurled at Jesus this day, is there something that we often miss? Did you know that both criminals asked to be saved? Did you know that? Look at verse 39. Notice what it says, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, here it is, save yourself and us. Oh, wait a minute. The other criminal that we're not talking about today, do you realize that he prayed to be saved? But do you know the salvation he prayed? It was a foxhole kind of a salvation. Lord, if you'll just get us out of this mess. He was asking for a temporary salvation, but this man who truly saw Christ for who he was and recognized that he was guilty of his sins and he deserved to be punished, this man asked Jesus for what alone Jesus can give. He said, Jesus, remember me, and he was asking for eternal salvation, not just temporal salvation. There's a lot of people who ask Jesus to get them out of a mess 
Lord, I'm in a mess. Get me out of this mess. That's not salvation. Unless by the mess you mean the mess of your sins in which you are drowning and Jesus has paid for in full so that he can rescue you from your sins, you can't just have a foxhole kind of religion. You have to recognize that Jesus is the sinless Son of God, and you have to come to him and ask him for what he alone can give. And what he alone can give is the gift of eternal life. The unrepentant thief met Jesus face to face, but he didn't own his sins. He didn't acknowledge that Jesus was the sinless Son of God, and he didn't ask for the eternal salvation. He asked for temporal salvation. He didn't ask for the eternal salvation that God alone, Jesus alone, could give him. Let me see if I can illustrate what I'm trying to tell to you. Probably some of you will recognize the name Coach Hugh Freeze. How many of you recognize that name? Okay. He's a football coach. He was at one point the head coach of Ole Miss University. And he used to tell the story about how, as a high school coach, he had worked with Michael Orr. You remember the story of Michael Orr? It was portrayed in a movie called The Blind Side about an African-American young man who was virtually abandoned by all of his family to raise himself. He had no one that cared about him, and then the Tui family took him in, finally adopted him. You remember that story? Well, did you know that Coach Hugh Freeze was his high school, one of his high school football coaches? Well, Michael Orr wanted to repay him. He wanted to do something for him once he became a professional football player. So he invited Coach Freeze to go to Lambeau Field to see the Green Bay Packers play, which was something that Coach Freeze had always wanted to do. Coach Freeze said that he went to get on a private plane, and one of the security men stopped him. But Michael said, he's with me. He said they landed and went to the team hotel, and when they walked into the lobby, another security man stopped Coach Freeze, and Michael said, he's with me. He said they went to the football stadium for the game, and he went into the player's locker room, but a security guard stopped him, and Michael said, he's with me. He said he got to go out onto the field while they were warming up, but a security guard stopped him again, and Michael Orr said, he's with me. Coach Freeze said the only thing he had to offer to get on the plane and go to the hotel and get on the field was that he was with Michael. Do you know that the only thing we have to offer to get into heaven is that we're with Jesus? It's the only thing we have. We've trusted in him for eternal salvation so that we ourselves might walk in the paradise of God alongside of him. And the only reason we get in is because we're with him. My friends, today, are you with him? Are you with him? Have you trusted in him? Have you owned your sins and said, yes, I'm a sinner that needs the Savior? And yes, I believe that Jesus is the Savior. And you ask him, Jesus, give me the gift of eternal life. That's what he's promised to do for anyone and for everyone who calls on him. Today, when you leave... I want to give you something that I want you to take with you 
There'll be people out in the lobbies and you can take them uh, and keep them with you through this week. This is the Passion Week. This is a little wooden cross and it has a place where you can put a chain on it and you can hang it and wear it around your neck. I'm not necessarily asking you to do that, though that's a good thing to do. I'm asking you to take that cross and I'm asking you to put it in your pocket, put it in your purse, put it where you will see it for certain every single day. Maybe that's by the, your favorite chair at the coffee table. Lay it on top of your Bible where you read your Bible every single day or where you go to kneel and pray or where you go to sit and pray and you put it there because every day this week, I want you to think about the cross. You have no hope apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Next week, we'll celebrate his resurrection. The fact that the resurrection authenticates that God accepted his sacrifice, but at the end of this week, Jesus will suffer that ignominious death. And I want you to think about the cross every single day this week. I want to close with three simple thoughts. Number one, I'd like you to name the place in the time that you trusted in Christ to be your Savior. Where was it? When was it? I was a 16-year-old boy in the youth room of the Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Stockbridge, Georgia, listening to a youth pastor speak on December the 26th, a Wednesday, December the 26th, and I asked Jesus to give me what he alone could give to give me eternal life. Where is it for you? When is it for you? Folks, this is no game. This is no religious ceremony we're going through. This is eternity we're talking about. If you can't think of that place and you're not certain of that place in a moment, I'm going to help you. Number two, don't give up on anybody's eternal soul because it's never too late till they're gone. You think about that man hanging on the cross. He couldn't be a member of a church. He couldn't be baptized. He couldn't do good works. He couldn't give offerings. He couldn't do any of the things that you and I think of doing when we think of being a religious person. He couldn't do any of those things. But he could turn his heart to Jesus and he could believe in Jesus and be given a place in that walled garden with Jesus. There's nobody beyond the grace of God. I'm glad to be able to tell you there's nobody beyond the grace of God. Keep praying. Don't give up. Keep sharing. Keep going back again and again. And number three, are you ready? Don't wait till heaven to begin walking with Jesus as a companion of the garden. Don't wait till you get to heaven to begin walking with Jesus as a companion of the garden. Start walking with him right now.